Hey friends, this is Eric, and welcome to Anti-Visions. Well, in last week's episode, I gave a crash course on critical race theory, and I just chose 10 points. There's so much to talk about, but I chose 10 points to just briefly scratch the surface. And one of those points, uh, which happened to be number nine, which is kind of an arbitrary number, but I said that I was going to probably have to do a whole episode on. And even even then, it's going to just be the tip of the iceberg. But this is that episode, and it's on science, math, and reason. Um, the statement from last week, point number nine, was science, reason, rationality, and evidence are cultural products, that is, scare quotes, cultural products of white Western men and thus carry biases that favor those groups. This means that they are white Western male ways of knowing that unfairly exclude other ways of knowing, like tradition, emotion, superstition, and storytelling, which are the best ways for minoritized races to express their knowledges. Yes, I did not say knowledge. I said knowledges. So in this episode, I am going to just introduce you, if you're not familiar with, some of these ideas. And I know in several episodes I've referenced the the animosity that postmodernism and particularly critical theory has towards science and history and rationality. Uh, so I just want to share a, a few things that you might find alarming, but I believe that are very important. And one is the very idea of knowledge itself, which is called epistemology. Every philosophy has an epistemology, a theory of knowledge. And critical theory, so I want to clarify, last week's episode was about critical race theory. This week, it's a little bit more general because critical race theory is still under the umbrella of critical theory. And there are many different critical theories, but they all work together. For instance, there's post-colonial critical theory. There are uh, disability studies, which is a type of critical theory. There are fat studies, which is a type of critical theory. Most feminist uh, studies today are critical theory, uh, feminist studies. So their critical theory can uh, find its way into every different facet of life. And so critical race theory is the one that we most hear about today because that's the grievance that is most highlighted and honestly the most expedient one to exploit uh, for those with that vision today. So Back to the idea of knowledge and knowledges. In critical theory, you'll hear them talk about knowledges because if you recall, but going all the way back to my first podcasts about postmodernism, there's the idea that there is no objective reality, that there is no capital T truth, and therefore there is no way for anyone to have a, uh, to capitalize on the idea of knowledge. There's no way to have a universal truth or universal knowledge or make that truth claim. And so their view is that there are knowledges, but there's not an overarching knowledge. Now that's postmodernism. And 
I'm just going to speak on this point, and then we'll get into some details about science and math, but I've, I've got to hit a little bit of the theory first, and it's, it's interesting because, of course, there's, I've talked about this before, that there's postmodernism, which is very relativistic and anti-meta-narrative, meaning anti-having a, a uh, story that explains everything. And um, it's very, very much about the smaller narratives that are the, the voices that have been oppressed, and those voices uh, can help disrupt the meta-narrative and disrupt the the, I guess they would say the illusion of objectivity and truth. But of course, as, as I've shared before, that as, as the theory developed, there was a time, particularly in the 80s, when critical theory, that critical theory that actually predated uh, postmodernism, uh, found new traction and, and had this interesting relationship with postmodernism so that postmodernism became an expedient tool to use uh, so against one's opponent and to to basically tear down any argument and say, well, you know, there, there is no truth. You can't make those truth claims. So particularly for Western civilization, uh, the, the, it's how dare you say that you're superior? How dare you say that you're right? How dare you say that your math is, is the right way or your history is the right one? Uh, because history we know is written by the winners and, and therefore we can't really trust that history. We don't really know that that's really what happened. And so it, it just becomes this, this way of constantly tearing uh, your opponent down by attacking their knowledge base by saying you have no basis in knowledge is by attacking their epistemology because basically postmodernism is an attack on the foundation of modern thought and modern thought is founded on reason so the attack is on reason itself so I'm going to give some real world examples of the way that reason objectivity and Western civilization itself are being undermined. Uh, just as I said, science, reason, rationality, and evidence are viewed as cultural products of white Western men. And they're biased. And, and they're in the way of these knowledges. George Orwell, the author of the book 1984 and Animal Farm, once said, Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. And a perfect example of this is the 1619 Project, which was published by the New York Times in, I believe, 2019. Uh, it still makes quite a bit of news today. And the author of it is Nicole Hannah-Jones. And she is a perfect example of... of a critical theorist that does not believe in objectivity, that believes that we need to decolonialize curriculum and history and that there's not a need for objective truth. Indeed, there is no objective truth. So if you're not familiar with the 1619 Project, it's, it's a project that uh, is, is focused on American history, and her goal was to basically to write American history from the perspective or to recenter it, she says, um, from the perspective of, of African Americans. And she contends that 
and and this is a, a fact though back in 1619 there was a ship uh of slaves that basically they were detoured the the slavers were detoured on their path and they ended up selling the slaves in, in Virginia and of course at this time it, it was we were not the United States it was a colony and and honestly the the people she won't tell you this but the the people from England that were working here were basically serfs themselves um the white people that were working here but anyway they whoever was running the company, I don't know if it's Virginia company or whatever, they purchased those slaves from the slave traders. And so that was, she claims that's really the birth of America. It's, it's 1619 because of that. And, um, and then she goes on to make some really radical claims that, um, that the reason why we went to war with Britain, the reason why we entered into the revolution is because supposedly we wanted our slaves so badly that that um, there was a fear that Britain was going to to demolish or abolish slavery, and because because of that fear, that's why the colonies went into revolution against Britain. Just so you know, she won the Pulitzer Prize from this, and this is a curriculum that has been embraced and adopted not only by colleges, but also by many public schools, and it's actually spreading uh, to the extent that President Trump has actually recently stated that he wants to not fund schools that are going to teach the 1619 Project, and with good reason, because it's she's not a historian, she's a... a uh, a journalist and in its sensationalism and uh, uh, many of the of the things that she says are, are are not in agreement there are many historians that are top-notch historians that absolutely agree, disagree with this but the New York Times came out and still gave their reasons why they did it anyway Nicole Hannah Jones is very clear even if you read on Twitter that she does not believe in objectivity and that this is just more evidence of the fact that people actually think that there's objective truth. So um aside from the fact that when it comes to curriculum, you know, these things take years. If if there there is curriculum written, it has to go through all these approval processes and all all, all these different, you know, boards and all this stuff and then here's this journalist that can come along and write some fiction basically and she's pretty honest that it's fiction in, in some ways. Um and and then schools are adopting it because it's the latest fad. So some of the things that she says is by 1776, Britain had grown deeply conflicted over its role in the barbaric institution that had reshaped the Western Hemisphere. Uh, not quite by 1776. Anyway, in other words, we may never have revolted against Britain if some of the founders had not understood that slavery empowered them to do so, nor if they had not believed that independence was required in order to ensure that slavery would continue. So supposedly America... Uh, got its independence, fought against the British Empire so that we could continue to have slaves. And and that that was the obsession with the Americans. I mean, it's almost absurd to think that you would take on a massive empire just so that you can continue to lord it over some slaves. Uh, even though it was it was terrible, but slavery, I am reading right now a a on the podcast 
um, once a week, I read 10 minutes of The Real History of Slavery by Thomas Sowell. And slavery is a global issue that has gone back as far back as we know in time. It was not invented by the Europeans. It did not just begin in the Americas. And that is not why we went to war with Britain. As a matter of fact, um, there, there really wasn't a real movement to, to actually push slavery out until the 1800s. But Nicole Hannah-Jones maintains that this nation was founded, I quote, not as a democracy, but as a slaveocracy. I also recall that one of the things she said was the words uh, all men were created equal was a lie from the moment that it was written. And uh, she argues that the only people that ever stood for the ideals of America were the African-Americans, which I don't I don't disagree with. I think many of them really wanted their freedom, obviously. And and there's some incredible heroes that arose out of it. But she's arguing that none of the founding fathers really believed in the ideals that they were writing, that none of them actually, uh, that they were just hypocrites and, and they knew it. So, um, I, I do want to point out though, the weak, the weakness <clears throat> of her understanding, even in, in calling us a democracy you know, she says we were founded not as a democracy, but as a slaveocracy. Well, she's right. We were, we were not founded as a democracy. We were founded as a constitutional republic, and the founding fathers were were very skeptical of democracy. This nation has never been really a democracy. We're a republic, and I hope I hope that we can maintain the republic. Anyways, so. Uh, this article, there was an article that responded to the 1619 Project and said, possibly the most essential voice among critics, however, did not come from the historians who wrote to the Times, because many historians apparently wrote to the Times, the New York Times, about this, uh, about how terrible this was, that it was fiction, it's not history. Um, but the the this article, this author maintains that the greatest criticism came from a PhD at Northwestern, Leslie M. Harris, who wrote an opinion piece in Political ti- Politico titled, I Helped Fact Check the 1619 Project, and the Times Ignored Me. In the article published in March 2020, Harris states, I vigorously disputed the preservation of slavery claim. Although slavery was certainly an issue in the American Revolution, the protection of slavery was not one of the main reasons the 13 colonies went to war. She goes on, Despite my advice, the Times published the incorrect statement about the American Revolution anyway. And although I don't have time to enumerate all of the problems, this is only the beginning of the problems with the 1619 Project. But I do want to point out the the perspective and the viewpoint of uh, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones. In one Twitter debate about the project, she's responding to someone's criticism and she says, My point, which y'all are intentionally or unintentionally missing, is that there is no such thing as objective history. So complaints that the 1619 project is an Ill- illegitimate reframing of history deny that all history is framed. So, 
she views it as there is no objective history. And again, like I said before, there might not be absolute object objective, you know, history or objective knowledge, but it's enough. I mean, we've got enough history and enough historical accounts, especially from this time period. It's not like it's all positive. And she and many others make it sound like American history has been taught just from this positive light as though it's just this amazing, glorious past. And and certainly our, our forefathers and the early historians, they didn't shy away from telling the truth about it. I mean, they might have made some really uh, racist claims at times, you know, things that we look back and say, I can't believe they said that, but they still also, we have so many accounts of what actually happened. And there would, th- why, what would be the point? If, if everybody was lying, why would they even, why would we even have any documentation of this stuff in the first place? Why would we have documentation of the terrible things that we did if the goal was to whitewash the whole thing and make sure nobody knows the truth and to create this subjective reality that just paints this fake picture? That doesn't even make sense that that you know historians would indict themselves that a whole civilization would indict itself um so another thing that she says is uh, well she calls i'm not going to use the word but she calls the idea of objectivity is bs but she uses the real phrase and let's see another place she says the 1619 project explicitly denies objectivity We stated in the intro that this was a reframing of history and sought to center black contributions in the narrative. This has been my primary problem with the so-called criticism. So over and over, she argues that objectivity is just this fantasy and that that was not their goal in the 1619 Project. And yet at the same time, there's this political push to have it taught in the schools. And so that that's what's amazing is that there's this overwhelming uh, forthright testimony and confession that this is basically like a a uh, a fiction. It's a fiction. It's not objective truth. It's a recentering. It's a reframing because it's like what George Orwell said: whoever can control the present controls the past, and they control the future. So if if we allow someone to rewrite our past, then they're going to control the present. And those that control the present will control the future. And that's what's happening here. And she recognizes that because the, the perspective from Foucault, the perspective from the critical theorists is that all discourse is just power. It's a power struggle. And the goal is to, to regain that power. In the brilliant book, Cynical Theories, by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, uh, which recently came out, and, it, and I think it's just one of the seminal texts on understanding critical theory today, uh, the subtitle is How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. I highly recommend this book. Um, one of the the things that they say in regards to science, technology, and engineering and mathematics, which we also call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, um, that even these subjects have been affected. Since 2010, there have been an increasing number of proposals from within engineering arguing for the use of social justice concepts in that profession. 
They say, one 2015 paper proposes that an engineer should demonstrate competence in the provision of socio-technological services that are sensitive to dynamics of difference, power, and privilege among people and cultural groups. In the, English, in the book Engineering and Social Justice, published by Purdue University Press, we read many ver- variations of the same theme and a worrisome recommendation. Quote, getting beyond views of truth as objective and absolute is the most fundamental change we need in engineering education. Wait a minute. I- I'm just stopping from the quote. Purdue University Press. Published a recommendation because of the need for social justice and engineering and the need to get beyond the views of truth as objective and absolute. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm driving over a bridge, I want it to be made by somebody who believes in objective reality because I don't want the bridge to fall, you know, into the water below or into the canyon below. You know, I don't know about you guys, but if I am on the the 25th story of a building, I want that building to have been built by somebody who believes in objectivity, that there really is a real world and objectivity really matters. I don't want engineers that are operating by their feelings. And it's in the same way that we don't want doctors that don't know what they're talking about. We want doctors who know their science, who did really well in school, who have got their act together, and 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 they're not just going by some subjective idea. You can't make up reality and just do what you want. I don't want that person to do surgery on me. So um, it's amazing that these statements are being made. Anyway, I'll go back to the quote. This is from the book, Cynical Theories. Meanwhile, arguments have been made that mathematics is intrinsically sexist and racist because of its focus on objectivity and proof and because of disparate outcomes in mathematics education across racial groups. So, that's amazing. Math, if you didn't know, math, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, it is sexist. It's intrinsically sexist, as a matter of fact. Um, And it's racist because of its focus on objectivity. Because math could not be objective. It's it, There's no way. I mean, 3 plus 3 equals 6, that's just such a, a Western idea, isn't it? You know, it's just a, I mean, it's almost like a feely-feely thing, right? Because 3 plus 3 could equal anything if you want it to. I, again, obviously, I'm being very facetious, but this says, one 2018 paper asserts, Drawing upon indigenous worldviews to reconceptualize what mathematics is and how it is practiced, I argue for a movement against objects, truths, and knowledge towards a way of being in the world that is guided by first principles, mathematics. And that's, I'm just going to pause, mathematics, like math, mat, and then it's not I-C-S, it's X. Okay, so it's not the same as mathematics. I'll go back in. I'm, I'm, I'm going to press play again. This shift from thinking of mathematics as a noun to mathematics as a verb holds potential for honoring our connections with each other as human and other than human persons for balancing problem solving with joy and for maintaining critical biofocality 
at the local and global level. Similar cur curricula are under serious consideration for implementation in public schools at all levels in the Seattle area. Now, I will make sure to put that article ab about the serious curriculum changes in Seattle, which I'm sure you can only imagine. Um, this is an article from 2019, so we can see uh, where we're at in 2020, but I will make sure to put that in the notes. So if you want to go read the article, you can. Something that I hear more and more is the call to decolonize math, decolonize the curriculum, decolonize science, meaning we need to get Western thinking out. We need to get the idea of objectivity and truth and uh, the scientific method out. We need to get rid of those things, so we need to decolonize. So. Uh, I'm just going to reference this, and I'll put this in the notes as well. There was a a, uh, and this is representative of a, of a of a whole movement. Actually, I think it's got a hashtag called uh, hashtag Science Must Fall, and this was a like a little forum at the I want to say it was the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and they were talking about decolonizing. Uh, it was an amazing conversation that represents so many, but uh, this this panel was speaking and this one particular lady was speaking about science and she was saying science as a whole is a product of Western modernity. The whole thing should be scratched off. To decolonize science, you have to restart science from our perspective and experience. And she said the African perspective and experience. And then, and then she gave an example. She's, she, at one point she said, you know, uh, there's a, there's a lady that I spoke with in this one, you know, village and through black magic, she can send a lightning bolt to strike someone. And she said, can you explain that with science? And of course she was talking about the idea of knowledges. What I'm talking about here is the knowledges that there are all these different ways of knowing. And, and of course you know, colonialism is so terrible because it's silenced all these other knowledges. So she's saying, can you, how can you explain that with science? And there was someone in the room and he did not rudely say this. He just spoke out. He just said, it's not true. You know, like that was his explanation. And I mean, they went into an uproar that, you know, some people got upset. Other people started laughing and they were all, many of them were like, see, I told you, see, it, like to them, it was a perfect example of a colonized Western mind, which is actually what later she said. This is a perfect example of, of how you need to decolonize your mind. Your, your whole response was Western and, and whatnot. But it was also interesting because the, the moderator of the whole panel stood up and, and she quieted everybody down and then she addressed that person directly. She said, I need to address you. And this is in front of all these people. And she said, you know, she said, uh, by doing that, you are disrespecting the sacredness of this space. You know, we have these agreed upon rules and she points at them. I don't know what they were, but they're up on the wall. And, and she says, first, you need to apologize. Uh, and, and she makes him, and I can't believe the guy does. He apologizes to the panel and she says, this is not an antagon antagonizing space and we won't allow it. She says, um, it is. This is a progressive space where people are allowed to say their opinions. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I have to laugh because it was just amazing to watch because clearly no one is allowed to say their opinion unless it's exactly what you're supposed to say. So it, it's not a progressive space because it might be a safe space as in there's no ability, there's no resilience to handle any kind of um, alternate opinion, any kind of, of opposition whatsoever. I mean, this was not antagonism. It was just a genuine different opinion. And she's saying that this is a space where people are allowed to say their opinions. No, they're not. They, they have to swallow what you're saying. That's, that's kind of beside the point, but we see a lot of that. The point was really the idea of decolonizing science. We're going to decolonize it because it's so Western and we need these other knowledges like black magic, right? We need to know how to, you know, to bring lightning bolts down on people. And, and that knowledge is just, you know, honestly, it has been just as productive, hasn't it? I mean, so much, so much in the world has been produced by black magic, hasn't it? Of course, I'm being facetious. I'm just looking at the fact that, that science and technology, as we understand it, has produced so many things. Of course, not everything's perfect. And there are evils. There are evils in capitalism. There are evils in industry, in um, going back to the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, all of those things. But there are also great things and great advances that have made the quality of life for many people far better. And far more people live a better quality of life today because of science and technology. And, the, I, and then the, the very thing that's been proven to work we want to deconstruct and tear down because of other knowledges that have never proved themselves whatsoever. However, by my saying that, that in and of itself is colonial Western white thinking, you see? Okay, and onward to math. Let's attack math as well. We can't let it get away. Uh, we've got history. We've got science. Let's hit math. Um, in this article in The Wire, it was called To Decolonize Maths, Stand Up to Its False History. <laughs> now, I found it interesting in this article. It, call, it did not call math singular. It, call, it always calls it maths. Maths. Um, now, I, I, I kind of get the idea of knowledges, but maths, I don't know. Anyway, so this is a quote from this this. Uh, push to decolonize math, you know, and stand up to math's false history, because math, too, has a false history, not just Western civilization. But really, the reason why math has a false history is because the math as we know it is from the colonial Western world, which I've, I mean, I don't have time to go into, but I, I feel is so absurd, because mathematics, as we know it, pre-exists European Western, you know, thought far before, just far before it. So it, it's, it's, it's just so crazy and absurd. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a math historian, but, um, I, I think that they're way off on this. Anyway, this is what the article says at one point it says, thus formal mathematics creates a slave mentality. Did you get that? Formal mathematics creates a slave mentality. So, you know, I know that other article was talking about science, how it's, uh, oh, no, it wasn't just science. I was reading something about it, math being uh, sexist, right? Well, this is saying that it also creates a slave mentality. 
It creates a person who blindly relies on Western authority and conflates it with infallible truth. Pause. Again, I argued this earlier. I don't really know many people in Western civilization that believe other, other than in the Bible, I'm a Christian. I believe in the infallible truth in, in the Bible. But other than that, I don't know anybody that believes in infallible truth, that there's no way that anything can be pr- disproven. Because over and over in science and physics, in all of these different fields, theories are proven and then disproven. And so, y- you know, obviously it's just the idea of progress and that there are these, these uh, mechanisms that allow us to be objective and yet still test and prove the hypothesis until we can find better solutions and answers. Uh, so, so this is it's almost like a straw man because I don't know where there is the, even the idea of infallible truth and Western authority. Okay. Anyway, that's supposedly what it is. Back to the quote. So finding better ways of inculcating that slave men- mentality um, is absolutely the last thing we should do. Basically, uh, you know, he's saying that to teach the same math, but in a different way, because some people argue the way to get away from Western, uh, thinking and math is that we need to teach math in different ways. And if we do that in different ways, then we can subvert Western, you know, the Western colonial mindset. And what this author is arguing that even if you do that, you're still inculcating the slave mentality. And we need to basically decolonize math altogether, not just teach it differently, because it still would be colonial math. So in short, he says, maths can be decolonized. The simple way to do this is to have the courage to stand up to its false Western history and bad Western philosophy and focus solely on its practical value, period. That is so interesting because that is so abstract. I, I, you know, we're going to, the way you're going to decolonize math is you're going to stand up against its false Western history. But what do you do with two plus two equals four? What do you do with three plus three equals six? I mean, aside from the bad history and the bad philosophy, Anyways, I know that they're dealing with more complex mathematics than that, and I know mathematics can be just a world in itself, but uh, if, if anything, I, I, I've, always, I've always thought and understood that math is, is probably one of the most universal and objective languages there is. But that brings me to that very idea that 2 plus 2 equals 4. To quote George Orwell again, Uh, Winston, the character in 1984, early on in the book says, freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. Back in July, James Lindsay, uh, who I quoted earlier, he's my favorite critical theory guru guy. (laughs) Um, He tweeted a, a meme that said two plus two equals four. A perspective in white Western mathematics that marginalizes other possible values. Now, of course, he said this tongue in cheek. It's it's completely a, a joke, but it created a firestorm on Twitter that's actually still raging on to this day, uh, because from that point on, it got picked up and it picked up all this energy where people 
actually argued with this idea that two plus two equals four and and tried to prove that two plus two could equal five. And the reason wh- where it really took off was somehow it fell into Nicole Hannah-Jones, the one who authored 1619 Project in her lap, and she mocked what he said. Uh, I can't remember what she said, but she mocked it. And it really got a lot of publicity after that. And so he's had some of the biggest mathematicians on there and all these people trying to prove because you would be amazed to find that there are many PhDs in mathematics. I don't think they represent the majority, but they're out there that actually argue that math is relative or that math needs to be decolonized or that we need ethno-mathematics, which is what, you know, especially on the West Coast, many, many school districts are pushing for. Um, So... It, it just turned into this huge debate, which is absurd and funny. And it proves the point that George Orwell is saying freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. You know, and when you find yourself in a situation in a time where you can't even say two plus two equals four, you're heading for some real trouble. So there was an article that was posted in Popular Mechanics, and it was really um, in response to this James Lindsay Twitter storm, which brought a major mathematician named Kareem Carr into into the mix. And so in this one, I'm just going to read one paragraph in this Popular Mechanics. I can't believe Popular Mechanics even published this, but uh, it, in this one paragraph, it says, how music is recorded and compressed is a model. Okay, I could agree with that. And it says, language is a model. I could agree with that. Mathematics is a model. And troubled metrics like IQ are models too. It benefits no one, or perhaps only the people in power, to pretend their universal truths instead of engaging with the consequences of each model. Now, that... Okay, so mathematics just got thrown in there with troubled metrics like IQ as a model. Now, the metric for IQ as a model being prepared compared to mathematics itself and mathematics just being called a model and saying that it's just another model. And, you know, and we can't pretend that it's a universal truth. We can't, you know, ultimately we can't pretend that two plus two really equals four. And, and you would find that Kareem Carr actually does argue that sometimes two plus two does equal five. And he, and it's all ultimately all of these, it's all word games and semantics. It never conceptually ends up to be what they say it is. They're just playing all these games. I'm not going to go into the details, but Instead of engaging with the consequences of each model, gosh, the consequences of mathematics just done terrible things for us. I mean, think about how many people live longer lives and, you know, how far advanced we've, we've, we've brought our medical system and, um, you know, and all the technology that we enjoy and the fact that we can argue about these things over this thing called the internet and sitting in air conditioning, uh, from all the way across the world, it's just, you know, the, the consequences of these terrible, terrible, oppressive systems like mathematics. Back to George Orwell's 1984, he says, or Winston says, in the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner or later. The logic of their position demanded it, not merely the validity of experience. 
but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. That's amazing because that's actually what we're dealing with today is a whole movement that tacitly denies the very existence of external reality. Now, I'll be fair. Postmodernism doesn't actually believe that there's no external reality. It's just that there's no way you can really know what that external reality is. <laughs> anyway, this was, you know, this was written back in the 40s, I think, by George Orwell. Well, I'm going to leave you guys with that. Just wanted to share some of the terrifying realities and consequences of these theories because it's all part of the same system of thinking. The same people that are pushing for uh, anti-racist policies and for defunding the police and for all, all of these different social justice initiatives that, we're, that we see and we hear about are pushing for a world that would be void of science, void of math, that would turn history into fiction and rewrite history and therefore control the present and the future. Well, that's all for now. I'm going to cut it off and we'll come back next week with a whole new episode of Anti-Visions. See ya.